And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the crazy intersection of faith and reason these days. And I'm Doug Keck, your guide. And remember, Father Spitzer can only answer your questions if you send them to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's myriad websites, magiscenter.com, incrediblecatholic.com, and purposefuluniverse.com. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN On Demand page and on our EWTN YouTube channel. So if you missed anything, you can listen to it again. And we recently added the Stations of the Cross presented by the Chinacolo community, a great way to pray the stations during Lent. We invite you to check out our On Demand page for all the different programs, constantly new programs being added. Uh, totally anytime you want to watch it, you can watch it at your leisure. Our topic today is basically going to be catching up on those questions we haven't gotten to in our new book of the month for April, Answering the Questions of Jesus by the late great father Andrew Apostoli. Now this book was put out very early by EW10 Publishing, really didn't get the attention it should, and it's a great book by Father Andrew Apostoli, Answering the Questions of Jesus, perfect at this time of year. And also perfect, it's great to see Father Spencer once and again, and who will welcome us and lead us in prayer, if you would, Father. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us today, Doug, myself, our whole audience, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen and Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Very for nice. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Very good, so uh, this is a question uh, show. We, we're catching up on some of the letters and emails that people have sent us in, but we also still have a couple of uh, issues uh, in the news that I wanted to touch base on with you sure. and get your insights. Uh, this one I'll put you on the spot. Uh, the Catholic League <laughs> uh, put something out, Bill Donnie of the Catholic League, talking about um, mm. Governor DeSantis in Florida's parental rights in education bill yeah. that's kind of been attacked as the don't say gay bill. And the point he makes is to begin with the following terms never appear in the legislation. Heterosexual, homosexual, straight, gay, bisexual, intersex, non-binary, and transgender. None of those are even mentioned at all. Uh, but yet it's played up uh, in the press as if that's what it is. And the main issue is in this law and what he's looking for is that classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through third grade or in a manner yep. that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards and to make it sound like you know you can't talk about this at all in the school we're talking about kindergartners to third grade yeah, it's, uh, I think, first of all, what uh, Governor DeSantis is doing is absolutely perfect. I think uh, it's not only appropriate, it's not only moral, I think it is good for the emotional development of these kids to be exposed to these kinds of ideas, to hypersexualize and oversexualize, uh, you know, uh, officially do this in a school is absurd for the emotional health of these children. And, and I think uh, this is going to be borne out again and again and again. We saw that uh, Tennessee study, um, which, you know, already 
said that uh, going to school in these uh, very early years uh, probably is uh, not as healthy as staying at home uh, with one's mother, with one's parents, and uh, receiving the love, the instruction that comes there from. It certainly seems to bear out into the later years. But now I think we're going to find the very same thing. As we begin to look and measure what's going on uh, in, in Florida from this time forward, uh, and we start comparing it to other states that are so-called forward-looking states, right, in uh, New York, California, etc., I think we're going to find that uh, by um, delimiting these kinds of, um, you know, educational uh, uh, procedures that, that truly should be within the scope of parents and certainly not uh, public administra ad administrators and teachers acting contrary to the parents, uh, I would say uh, definitely we're going to find that the emotional health of these kids is much better than those in the forward-looking states. So I applaud Governor DeSantis. I hope uh, this legislation not only fares well, I hope people start measuring it over against, um, you know, measuring the emotional health of these kids over against right. that uh, in other states and those in private schools who are not subjected uh, to this kind of hyper and over-sexualization. Right, another aspect of it, exactly to what you were just saying. School district personnel are prohibited from discouraging or prohibiting parental notification and involvement in critical decisions affecting a student's mental, emotional, or physical well-being. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this is uh, certainly not only within, it is the parents' rights to have custody over this. It's the parents' right to be able to veto this kind of, uh, of, of uh, curriculum, which is invasive, truly invasive, uh, not only to the emotional health, but to the spiritual health, in our view, to the spiritual health of these children. There is just no possible way I see any good in it. And I see, you know, the, the idea of prying open this whole area, uh, you know, is just almost a propagandistic move to continually desensitize the culture, desensitize the kids uh, to um, appropriate versus inappropriate uh, uh, sexuality. And of course, being a good Catholic Christian, mm. here I certainly am of the opinion that sex belongs within marriage. And I, um, you know, in, in view of that, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, talk and in, in, I mean, <laughs> these kids are completely unaware. Why are we doing this? Why are we uh, hypersexualizing them and oversexualizing them? Why? Uh, you know, I mean, it's obviously for the purposes of desensitization. It's obviously for the purposes of, of, of trying to create a cultural agenda uh, which will be, you know, open to license, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the future. And so I, I think all of these wow. things, um, you know, uh, let's put it right back in the hands of the parents where it belongs. These are parental rights. I agree with the name of the bill. Uh, I think parental information, parental rights uh, absolutely um, should be uh, mm -hmm. respected. And I think Florida is doing the right thing. And I think the, the real um, overreaching states are those who are so-called forward-looking states mm -hmm. uh, that are trying to introduce these kinds of uh, um, over-sexualized curricula, um, you, know, at, at, you know, at the expense of the parents or hiding it even from the parents. Right. Exactly. Let me ask you a question. As an educator yourself and having uh, been mm -hmm. the president of Gonzaga, etc., the idea of why is it so likely that you find this general 
um, view of the world being propagated in our schools today? Is it because it just comes down from the universities? Is it the teacher colleges that people tend to go to to get certified? Where does it come from? Well, first and foremost, of course, it does come from uh, what I call a new cultural alliance. And the new cultural alliance uh, prizes freedom and prizes, you know, an unrestrained sexuality as one of the aspects of that absolutizing of freedom and autonomy. And that is in this new cultural alliance, which I would call, it's the educational establishment for sure, mm -hmm. starting with higher education. But it's also the media establishment, mass media establishment, and it's also the social media establishment. Of course, there's a social media establishment. The idea that this is all diversified and that there's no agenda uh, from above by these big uh, companies that are, of course, the, the, uh, the, the people who are controlling Facebook or internet or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea that they're hands off is uh, you know, laughable, uh, to say the least. Uh, yeah, of course, they're a big cultural force. The church used to be a big cultural force, but now the church has been turned into the new cultural enemy. Uh, and it's not just a Catholic church, it's all churches are the cultural enemy. Those that are counter the position of autonomy first, right? That is to say, the absolutizing of freedom first. Uh, that absolutizing of, of freedom, uh, even if it causes great, great destruction to the emotional health, spiritual health, relational health, and marital health within the culture, and therefore great destruction to the cultural, to cultural health itself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, irregardless, this notion of autonomous freedom, as uh, Solzhenitsyn put it a long time ago, mm -hmm. has not only become absolutized, get out of the way, uh, you know, you, you, you better like the absolutizing of freedom or we'll shoot you. You know what I mean? It's the, the irony, uh, you know, that the, that the social police are going to come out and marshal you into a view of right. absolute freedom, which, of course, is not absolute freedom. That's just what you're supposed to hold mm -hmm. so that the real people who control uh, what you're supposed to do with your freedom and what you're supposed to buy with your freedom and where you're supposed to move with your freedom and the kinds of cultural agendas and political agendas that you will move with your freedom uh, aha! So it's freedom for the purpose of influencers of the culture. That's what it's really about. Solzhenitsyn saw through it oh, way back in, I think, he, in that great address at Harvard right, in 1978, right. 79, whatever it may have been. But the, the point that uh, is clear, he saw right through it. We know that this is, uh, goes by the name of freedom, but the real thing is control. Right. But it's controlled by a new establishment. To, it's to de-establish right, the churches and to, and, you know, to establish uh, the, um, uh, the new alliance. The new alliance would be not just social media, not just mass media, not, not just educational establishment, but legal establishment. Also be the artistic literary establishment. It would also be the marketing establishment. Now, this, you might say, well, those are strange bedfellows. Indeed, they are. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, uh, all of these things, um, I must tell you, they, this is the new alliance, and it's all around a culture that can really gain from it. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of influencers that want to make this uh, agenda go forward. 
And strangely enough, one of the agendas is not just to make money from this. Mm -hmm. It's not just to gain political control from this. I mean, those are two big agenda items, mm -hmm. let's face facts, of the new cultural agenda that pretends to be about autonomous freedom. But um, this, the other uh, uh, agenda item is to de-establish the churches, mm -hmm. to, to take the emphasis away from God. I mean, you can't be God, right? The, the new establishment cannot be God for uh, people mm -hmm. unless the real God is pushed out to the periphery, unless the real God is marginalized. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, uh, part of the, uh, in my, you know, you say, well, Spencer, have you turned into a, a conspiracy oh, theorist? Yes. <laughs> I've always been a conspiracy <laughs> theorist in this regard. I just look at the signs of the times. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly there is an attempt to deestablish religion. What I find so interesting, of course, is as this de-establishment of religion is going on, let's uh, uh, take a look at uh, uh, the fact that, you know, as I said in previous programs, mm -hmm. the young scientists are now 66% theists. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 51% overall in, in the scientific community are theists, but a supermajority of young scientists under 40 are um, are now theists, mm -hmm. and of course, so the the evidence uh, and and clearly the scientific establishment is moving in the other direction. But uh, you know, let's face it, you know, you're not going to make as much money, uh, you're, you're not going to be able to grab as much political power uh, as you could if you could just displace the real God, so that you can become God in his place. So if, if that's, uh, do I think that this is definitely an agenda item? I do, I mean, I, this goes all the way back to Marx. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, you know, if you're gonna uh, get a social revolution going, if, if the state is gonna become, as it were, the new God, the new absolute, uh, the, he won't call it the absolute Geist a la Hegel, but right, it's gonna be the new absolute you know, buried in matter, uh, you know, um, uh, dimension of people's lives, if that's going to be turned over to the state, you've got to, you know, make atheism kind of an official doctrine of the state. That was Marx's uh, viewpoint. And, uh, and we see that Nietzsche uh, realized it. I mean, the 19th century gave birth uh, to these wonderful thoughts. <laughs> but now we've got social media, we've got the uh, mass media, we've now got the educational establishment uh, kind of buying into this, the legal establishment, although in our Supreme Court that is not the case. Mm -hmm. So the legal establishment has just put the brakes on, at least in the higher dimension and in some of the appellate courts, but in uh, other places, of course, uh, there has uh, definitely been mm -hmm. an attempt to co-opt uh, the courts to go along with it. Certainly, um, some uh, dimensions of the political establishment are on board. The artistic literary establishment is on board completely. Right. I mean, uh, let's face it, uh, the social agenda there is, is uh, de definitely de-established religion. Um, and and uh, at the end of the day, the marketing establishment, why wouldn't they join? Hey, listen, if you can just make materialism the new cause of the day, if, if you can make uh, uh, social autonomy uh, the big mm -hmm. cause of the day, if you can make uh, you know people think that really what matters in life is uh, to be the most intelligent, the most powerful, the most uh, uh, popular, et cetera, et cetera, man, the money you can make is, is you know, just unbelievable. So, yeah, of course, we've got strange bedfellows, but 
uh, it's not surprising. It's not surprising that they want to de-establish uh, religion. They, of course, want to get rid of traditional morality. Traditional morality gets in the way of all of these agendas. And in place, it says, you ought to be worshiping God, your creator, and your redeemer who rescued you from the evil spirit who is literally embedded in this new social agenda, namely the, the social agenda that has the lie of autonomous freedom, uh, which of course means nothing more than social control from above once you really believe you're free, but you're not. It's all about newspeak, ladies and gentlemen. It's all about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the idea of convincing you you're Orwellian approach. Yep. You know, all that SOMA yeah. stuff, uh, you know, everything mm -hmm. to either medicate you down or convince you what you're seeing isn't what yeah. you're really seeing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I mean, in, in the whole regard, I, I think honestly, some of the actors, some of the political actors, and even some of the legal actors, uh, certainly some of the educational actors in, in this new cultural agenda to de-establish religion and become sort of a, uh, you know, a god, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a uh, imminent god, as it were, um, for uh, people. I think um, they don't even know what they're into. They, they, right. they're, it's like C.S. Lewis is nice, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, in his third book in the Paralandra trilogy, where all these people are belonging to the uh, so-called inner circle, right? And as they are, are participating in the inner circle, um, you know, they're being co-opted day after day after day into giving over not only, um, uh, you know, their morals to the state, not only their religion to the nice, as it were, uh, but they're also co-opted into giving themselves. And so at the end of the day, they're, they're nothing more than puppets for the nice. Right. Um, and so uh, uh, I think, you know, who's, who's, who's right. pulling the, per, uh, the, the strings in this little um, uh, arena? At the end of the day, as Lewis uh, clearly says, it's Satan. He uses, right. of course, right. uh, sci-fi terms. But it's, uh, yeah, of course, right. it's Satan who's, who's pulling the strings of this thing. And he's the one in control, you might think you're in control uh, at the end of the day and the top of the nice or the top of the new cultural lights may think they're in control but they're not uh, satan is the one eventually who come and lay claim to uh, all of the um, the fruits of his labors and speaking of satan let's move to our questions uh, and this is kind of related dear father spitzer <laughs> My godson has a Ouija board with which he and his friends play. His parents look at it as harmless fun. I've tried explaining both to my godson and his parents the dangers involved to no avail. What is my next step as a godmother since I have no real authority? Oh, well, I mean, I think what you're doing is the right thing. You have to explain to them that there is a spirit, an evil spirit that is involved in the use of this Ouija board. And whether you think you're doing this or not, you are inviting this evil spirit into not just your life, you're inviting the evil spirit into you. And uh, this is the, you know, the, the, uh, the example of Robbie Mannheim, you know, that's in that book, The Exorcist. Of course, you don't want to mm -hmm. scare the living daylights out of them. Uh, but in, um, in a manner of speaking, I'll tell you this right now, the more you use that Ouija board, 
the more you are giving power over, uh, you're giving permission over uh, to this evil spirit uh, to enter into your life, to enter into you, even if you are not intending that this be the case, even if you're using it as a plaything. Remember, you are invoking spirits. You And those spirits, they're not good spirits. They're not angels. I don't care what anybody tells you. It's the evil spirit that is being invoked. And so uh, the consequences will be there. Mm -hmm. So as a good godmother, think the best thing you can do is to just keep harping away at this and say the best thing you can do is throw that Ouija board out. Throw it out. Get it out of the house. Or just say, if you would like, I will throw it out for you. And then take the Ouija board and take the box it came in and everything. Just take it and throw it out in the dump. Right, good idea. Maybe come up with a better game that they uh, could be playing that isn't yeah. such a Oh, well, maybe that's a great one, idea. You know, problematic yeah. one. Yeah. Anyone. A risk would be good for people like us, but uh, I'm yeah, dating right. myself. Yeah, right. I love right? risk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stratego. There, there you go. Capture the flag. Uh, next up, uh, Dear Father Spitzer. Where did evil come from if everything emanating from God is good? I realize that Satan had free will and rebelled. But for this to even have happened, didn't evil have to already exist, Barbara? Well, Barbara, um, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. Uh, the possibility of choosing evil existed for Satan, but you did answer your own question because, of course, it comes from freedom. Once God makes a, a, a being, whether it's an angelic being or a human being, once God gives that being freedom to choose good or evil, now what God did was not create evil. He created the possibility of choosing evil. And God knew very well what he was doing, and, um, he, but that's the cost of making a free being. And God wanted to do that because, for very obvious reasons, um, you know, a being that can't choose uh, uh, freely cannot choose love of his own accord or her own accord. So basically, uh, in order to create the possibility of love that, that can issue from within ourselves, what did God do? Mm. He, he created us free, and in order to create us free, he had to give us the possibility of choosing evil, and Satan chose that evil possibility, and that's how it came into the world. So you could just distinguish by saying God didn't create evil. God created the possibility of choosing evil at the very time he created um, free choice in order to create the possibility of choosing love and right. having love issue from within us and not just as a computer program. Right, and automatons, him. right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Here's another question, dear Father Spitzer. Uh, Genesis 3.15 tells how God will put enmity between the woman and the serpent. Depending on what translation I read, it goes on to say he will crush the head, or she will crush the head, or they will crush the head of the serpent. Each translation mm -hmm. has a very different meaning. Why the difference, Elizabeth? Oh, yeah, because Elizabeth, the Hebrew, unfortunately, is ambiguous. And so uh, we, it's very, very difficult uh, 
on uh, the basis of grammar alone to make a, um, you know, an interpretation, to, to actually give a strict translation. So because all those possibilities exist in the ambiguity of the Hebrew, uh, what are we left with? Well, we're left with trying to look at what would be the best translation given the context. And in, uh, I must tell you that it really depends on the theological opinion you have. Mm -hmm. This matter will not be solved exegetically. Mm -hmm. It's going to have to, you know, what's the theological view you have? What do you think that the biblical author was trying to say uh, in, the, in his context, right? So you have to, to look at the, the context of the biblical author, and then you have to make your best guess. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people uh, certainly think that, uh, um, you know, it is referring to she and therefore to the Blessed Virgin Mary. A lot of people really do think uh, that it could be a much more ambiguous kind of, uh, of uh, interpretation, a he or a they. So, um, alas, alas, uh, you know, I can't tell you on the basis of exegetical grounds, uh, but I certainly believe that the Blessed Virgin Mary um, uh, is the... Um, you know, the, the type uh, corresponding to uh, Eve who will redeem Eve's sin. She's going to be the mother of God and, of course, bringing uh, the Son of God into the world incarnate as, as an incarnate being is the utter defeat of Satan. So I have no problem whatsoever interpreting that verse as uh, she's going to crush your head. So that would be my view. Okay. Okay. And as you indicated, there are uh, there are other views as well out there. Yes, there uh, are other views. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, next and all up, of them are actually yeah, pretty right. much true. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean, you, you said. I mean, that's that, yeah. that's an important thing. I yeah. think sometimes, especially in the world we live in today, we look for this definition to say, well, there must be a way of getting exact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's not always the case, especially when you're looking back uh, over uh, 2,000 years. Dear Father Spitzer, or even longer. I was reading the book of Exodus about the plague sent upon Egypt. The Bible describes how Pharaoh would relent after plague and agree to release the Israelites. Then God would harden Pharaoh's heart and he would change his mind. Is this not God taking away Pharaoh's free will? Sandy. Well, Sandy, you know, um, um, it's so, again, what we're dealing with in, in uh, this interpretation, and, and it's a question for just about everybody. Uh, you know, people say, well, why would God do that? It seems like he's almost defeating, um, you know, his own purpose in letting his people go uh, by, you know, having Pharaoh harden his heart. And so some people think, well, was the biblical author trying to say that, uh, that God just wanted to really crush the Egyptians, uh, you know, and make it an utter defeat, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, most people just say, well, this is the, you know, um, the biblical author's interpretation of why Pharaoh seems to have held out so long. So the biblical author thought, well, maybe it's because God hardened his heart. I mean, why would anybody do this and, and hold on to the bitter end with all these plagues taking place and so forth and so on? Maybe God hardened his heart. And that gets put, of course, into the script. But remember, you know, there's the, the, there's the historical facts, as it were, and then there is the interpretation of those facts. So what's going on in the mind and the heart of Pharaoh? Well, that, of course, um, you know, uh, 
is a matter of interpretation. And, and uh, in, Catholic, in the Catholic viewpoint, right, we do not have um, what's called the dictation view of inspiration. Um, the dictation view would be that God is directly telling the biblical author everything to say. In, in the, there are some Protestant um, uh, groups that do believe that. The Catholics actually believe in a, a kind of a co-participative uh, view of inspiration. In other words, that God is inspiring the human a biblical author. The human biblical author is then bringing his uh, understanding of things, his cultural categories, his um, uh, understanding of, you know, of cosmology and physics and so forth. He's bringing all of these things uh, into play to get the inspiration of God, uh, you know, out into the world. So what Pope Pius Twelfth told us in this uh, wonderful um, encyclical, uh, Divino Aflante Spiritu, I think it was way back in 1942 or 41, um, but in any case, uh, what uh, Pope Pius XII told us is that, in, uh, that what the point of biblical writ, the point of scripture, is to give us sacred truths necessary for salvation. That's what's really going on. Is it to give us physics? Uh, no. Is it to give us the scientific explanation of how the universe originated? No. It's to give us sacred truths necessary for salvation. Well, what would those sacred truths be? Well, for example, there's not many gods, right? So in the biblical author's time, all around him, there's all these epics and myths, right, that have many gods. But the biblical author says, no, it's one god, not many gods. And then, of course, they've got a sun god and a moon god and a sea god and so forth. So the biblical author has to say, okay, natural things. In fact, there's only one god, and therefore everything else, the mountain and the sea and the, um, and the moon, and the sun, these are not gods. They're just creations of God. Are you trying to is that a truth necessary for salvation? Absolutely necessary for salvation. Human beings are not just cannon fodder to be used in the hands of, of the gods who are playing some sort of chess game, checker game, you know, on a, on a board and using human beings as the characters. But human beings are made in the image and likeness of God himself. Is that a tr sacred truth necessary for salvation? Absolutely. So the biblical author is doing everything Thing he's supposed to do. Now you say, well, what about Pharaoh getting his heart? And hardened? we're going to wait till after the break <laughs> oh. for you to, to hold that in suspense <laughs> okay. and you can give the answer we've been all waiting for. <laughs> right. Much more with Father Spitzer and your questions. Stay with us here in the universe. Continue to answer your questions, and uh, we thank you for staying with us. And I so rudely interrupted Father there to get to that break when he was just going to explain the whole point of what is meant by the Pharaoh and God's hardening yeah. his heart. Go ahead, Father. 
Right. So uh, basically, to put everything together, that is not a truth necessary, a sacred truth necessary for salvation. Whether, you know, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart or didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, it is the biblical author with his viewpoint of culture, his viewpoint of trying to answer the question, why are the Egyptians holding out with all these things going on around them, etc. This is his interpretation. He's trying to give the people an answer to the question that's burning within them, and so he gives them this answer. Uh, do we have to take this literally? No, we don't. Uh, do we have a dictation view of uh, inspiration that would require us to do so? No, we don't. Can we actually say that this interpretation of the Scripture occurred uh, precisely because of the, the biblical author's cultural viewpoint? Yes, we can. Mm -hmm. So um, I would not over-labor this. Right. I would probably just say this is how the biblical author tried to understand the question himself, but he's doing it from the vantage point of a warrior society. He's right. doing it from the vantage point of a limited understanding of natural causation. And so that's the best guess he's gotten. Right. That's what's put into the narrative. But don't give it any more moral authority than you need to. Uh, I certainly have not throughout right. the course of my existence. Well, I'm interested in that phrase, hardening your heart, because there, there, there's songs that talk about hardening yeah. your heart. And you think about it in terms of people who don't accept God's mercy and accept, and accept yeah. because they've hardened their heart. Yeah, I don't want to listen. Right. That's what it really means. Right. You, your words are hitting me here, but they're not penetrating. They're right. not getting through to the the seat of the intuitions, to the seat of, of, of feeling and passion, to the seat of the soul, which the of course Israelites viewed as the heart. Uh, so they weren't, you know, sort of looking at the heart as an organ that pumps blood. They thought uh, of the heart as uh, something which was the seat of intuition and, and of feeling and of communication with God. So uh, they hardened their heart. That means they, they, they didn't want to listen. They wouldn't let the words of God penetrate into, this, uh, into their souls right. uh, is the best way of putting it. Okay, very good. Another question for you, dear Father Spitzer. Why would Jesus perform miracles, then tell the recipients to keep it a secret? When people see a blind man who can suddenly see, or a leper who no longer has any sign of the disease, they're going to ask questions. What would be the purpose of the miracle other than to convince unbelievers? Stan. Yeah, that's a good question, and of course this is called, uh, what was initially said by Taylor to be the messianic secret. And, and uh, the reason is, is because Jesus, uh, uh, you know, in Mark's view, and he's the one who initiated the idea of the messianic secret, right, uh, in, in Mark's view, Jesus had a time when he wanted his messiahship to be definitively known. So the reason for that is that when Jesus comes on the scene, people there is messianic inter, uh, um, you know uh, uh, you know um, uh, anticipation that's going on in the culture at, at the time, right? So it, it it is there, but they're looking for a different kind of Messiah. They're looking for a kind of a soldier messiah or somebody who's going to rescue them from Rome or uh, somebody who's going to extricate Israel uh, from any form of future worldly domination and a variety of other kinds of things, a kingly sort of fellow. But the point is, of course, 
Jesus is not that kind of fellow. Uh, Jesus is a person who grows up uh, very consciously uh, in, in a poorer household, not a absolutely destitute one. Uh, certainly Joseph had a profession and everything, but they were not on the higher end of things. They were not on the worldly power scale. Uh, they were on the scale of sacredness, as high as you could get, but in the eyes of the world, uh, that was not recognized. So what um, um, Taylor is saying uh, that Mark's purpose is to say that Jesus really, even though the miracle is there, even though he's, the exorcism is completed and all of these things are there and the conclusion is obvious, he would like to wait until there's kind of a preponderance, uh, you know, uh, of, of uh, uh, you know, people's viewpoints that goes in the direction that the Messiah could be something other than a this worldly Messiah. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, you know, uh, it's almost like don't tell anyone until you can see with your hearts mm -hmm. that this is the kind of Messiah that God would send. He would send a Messiah of mercy. He would send a Messiah of love. He would send a Messiah who was humble. He would send a Messiah who was self-effacing. He would send a Messiah that would uh, want to be with sinners and not disdain them. He would want, uh, send a Messiah completely unexpected. But if you think that that's the kind of Messiah that God would send, then you're going to listen to Jesus' words. Then all of the miracles in the world will now, uh, it'll be so perfectly consistent. Of course the miracles come from him. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that was uh, basically the reason that uh, Mark seems to have introduced mm -hmm. this view. And Matthew and Luke uh, uh, took that messianic mm -hmm. um, uh, secret view and they, they incorporated it too uh, into their gospels. Of course, right. uh, you know, um, it's the centurion uh, in Mark's gospel that's going to be the great revealer, mm -hmm. right? Remember, it's the the pagan centurion when Jesus is hmm. hanging on the cross, who points to him and says, surely this was the Son of God, wow. and sees it from the vantage point of the complete gift of self, the complete act of love that will redeem the world. The centurion gets it, and so the irony is complete. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Jewish people who had been given, as it were, uh, all of the prophecies to anticipate a Messiah like Jesus, they just could, simply, it wasn't uh, being comprehended. Of course, the mm -hmm. apostles did, the followers of Jesus did, but the Jewish authorities, the official ones, did not. Right. So it's almost like um, uh, the people know, um, but uh, it's almost like the authorities don't. So well, I, I would say, yeah. you know, you don't want to overread uh, that, you know, Jesus just doesn't want the full truth to come out. Right. I was going to say that. Right. And yeah. also, isn't it early on he maybe isn't quite ready to reveal himself as, as, as well, you're saying? Well, right? that's right. That's right. And there's a secondary opinion as well right. uh, of, of groups of exegetes that really believe 
that Jesus couldn't, um, you know, let the messianic speculation get out of hand. Right. Because if it did get out of hand, and then, of course, people could put two and two together to see that these miracles indicated um, that, it, you know, in fact, he was divine in, in the sense of forgiving sins, bringing the kingdom of God in his own person, mm -hmm. performing miracles by his own authority without recourse to God, performing exorcisms without recourse to God by his own authority. That people would put two and two together and go, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe the, you know, there's uh, something there. Jesus did not want the, the accusation of blasphemy right. uh, to be, uh, you know, pouring out ahead of time uh, because, of course, you know, um, he didn't want to, to push, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the button that would eventually lead to the crucifixion, which he right. was aware of. He wanted it to happen three years down the, the, the line, and he wanted in the meantime for these uh, miracles, for his preaching, for the establishment of the church, for the, you know, training of the apostles and so forth. He wanted all of, mm -hmm. he needed three years right. for this to happen. He didn't want a premature, right. um, you know, uh, uh, sort of um, right. Well, um, it runs totally uh, counter know, to the yeah. way we think today. We want instant gratification. If you're going to do it, why don't you yeah. do it now? Why do we have to wait three years? Yeah, right. yeah, right. yeah. But of course, he needs to do a little training and a little saying, mm. and uh, he needs to form a church. He needs to do a ton of things mm. um, before uh, he can allow um, the final culmination uh, in the passion right. to occur. But, uh, you know, I think that was a very good strategy. And, of course, uh, three years was uh, more than enough time, as we can see, uh, to have gotten the Gospels uh, put together, to have gotten the church formed, mm -hmm. to have gotten the apostles trained. All of these things really did occur. And, of course, Jesus had a huge uh, number of disciples uh, in uh, Jerusalem and in uh, even the, some of the pagan areas mm -hmm. surrounding uh, Israel, he had a huge number of disciples, and so he built a huge foundation before the trigger event happened uh, where he is being accused of blasphemy. Mm -hmm. But by the time he goes up to Jerusalem, and by the time, of course, it, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, he does have some kind of divine power where there's going to be, um, uh, you know, the confrontation with the Pharisees, the ultimate confrontation. Um, then, of course, he opens the door by not only confronting the Pharisees, but he allows these exorcisms and all the, the healing miracles. Everything is now manifest. Jesus is so popular. By the time he goes into Jerusalem, he's getting a reception on the road in right. as he's riding there on a donkey. I mean, he's basically getting uh, this huge reception. I mean, this is like you're just, you know, a lightning rod uh, mm -hmm. for, you know, the, the authorities that be, not only the religious authorities, but the political authorities to come after you. And in fact, they did. But by that point, uh, it, everything was ready to go. But essentially, that's the reason for the Messianic Secret. Keep, you know, my lightning rodness down to a minimum. Uh, you know, with respect to the religious and political authorities until I'm ready right. uh, to give myself freely um, for the, the life of the world. Very good. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, Mary was conceived without sin for the specific purpose of becoming the mother of God. Doesn't this then imply that she really had no choice at the Annunciation other than say yes? To say no would have gone against her immaculate conception. Tim. 
Oh, no, uh, no, 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 no. The Immaculate Conception didn't take away Mary's freedom. Uh, not at all. Uh, what it did was it uh, took away uh, concupiscence. Uh, remember, let's go back to Adam and Eve for just a moment. So uh, Adam and Eve were free. Now, they were not born with original sin, right? So in other words, this pre uh, um, uh, sin Adam and Eve, um, they were still very, very much, obviously, they had to be free in order to commit a sin, right? Mm -hmm. So, first of all, they're very free, but they are not uh, besieged by this concupiscence. So, what's concupiscence? After the fall of Adam and Eve, right, this, this kind of really almost direct contact, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm just going to call it a real direct, intuitive, sense not only of the presence of God, but the will of God within, let's say, Adam and Eve on the one hand, you know, before the fall, and Mary uh, throughout her entire life. So she had a kind of a direct uh, intuition sense, not only the presence of God, but the will of God that was just coursing through her. Could she have acted against the will of God? Oh, yes, she certainly could have. She was very, she was as free as Adam and Eve. She was as free as Lucifer. She was as free as any other human being. But she did have, as it were, that um, pre-sin um, um, Adam and Eve um, uh, awareness of God, which did rivet her and gave her a purity of it, of, of thought, uh, you know, and a purity of, uh, you know, the, the sense of the will of God in her life that we do not have. Uh, we just simply don't. We're hampered, right? So as uh, one of my professors used to tell me, the Catholic Church never believed in a Calvinistic fall, right? You know, where human beings fell 100% mm -hmm. from grace. So they went from 100 to zero mm -hmm. uh, at the fall. They went from 100 uh, down to 51%, sort of. Mm -hmm. In other words, they, man was always going to be 51% good even after the fall. Mm -hmm. However... He's definitely looking through that glass darkly. He's not got the same vision of God. He's not got the same sense of the will of God. He's not got the same purity of, of uh, uh, you know, a transparency uh, into the will, the mind, the heart of God uh, that uh, Adam and Eve had um, and uh, that Mary had and that uh, Satan before his fall had. Uh, he just... Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, but Mary, oh, she was very, very free indeed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he, you know, she could have chosen otherwise, but, of course, that's why the fiat, the all-important right. fiat, be it done unto me according to thy word, that becomes her free act of receiving the incarnate word of God into her, knowing what that would cost uh, in the end result, um, because, of course, she, she, she had the sense of the will of God, mm -hmm. that w God wanted it, and, of course, in her freedom, she obeyed uh, right. the, the will of God uh, without God having to force her. Now, one of the things you've talked about many times is the idea of, you know, reminding our, us that God is outside time. And so you're, you're talking about mm -hmm. God's understanding of Mary. I mean, did he already know outside of time she was going to say yes? Yes. Yes, but she right. still did it freely. Right, right. So we can't get into the, 
uh, Calvinistic fallacy of right. saying, well, she couldn't have been free then because God, you know, had foreknowledge of it. I mean, uh, we don't know how uh, God has foreknowledge of it, but I know one thing, when I get into fourth dimensional and fifth dimensional mathematics mm -hmm. and trying to look at this, uh, you know, uh, trying to look at, uh, you know, a space-time continuum uh, from outside of the continuum itself, mm -hmm. from the mind that is unifying time uh, and all the elements of time itself, I can't possibly get out of it. My mind, unfortunately, is completely mired in that space-time continuum. And so I, all I can look, do is look at the future protensively. I, I can't look at it as if it is, you know, a done yet not done from the vantage point of the being who's living within the narrative. Right. So I, I, I don't understand it, yet I see it as a possibility, and I certainly see it as a mathematical possibility, you know, as a trans uh, three-dimensional, even trans four-dimensional uh, possibility, but do I understand uh, trans four-dimensional mathematics? I do not. Mm -hmm. So I just look at it as that's part of the mystery. Right. But I'm not going to get sucked into the Calvinistic view that human beings have to be able to imagine when their imaginations are, are completely uh, conditioned by mm -hmm. time, that uh, human beings can imagine, um, you know, God, uh, uh, the, the vantage point of God or a transtemporal uh, vantage point or that I have to be able to do it in order for that to be an ontological possibility from a transtemporal point of view. So I, I think Augustine was much better informed and frankly much more intelligent than John Calvin in this right. particular regard, if not altogether. Right. I, I thought the fifth dimension was a musical group. I didn't know there really was one. Uh, <laughs> Indeed it was. Here you go Indeed for some of us oldsters. <laughs> Dear Father Spitzer, I've noticed many types of Bibles being sold. I'm a beginner to reading the Bible. Can you recommend a good first Bible to purchase, Andy? Well, Andy, you know, from the vantage point of a good literal interpretation that um, has uh, what I would call a... Um, uh, a um, you know, a, a style that's not too uh, uh, cumbersome. I would recommend the R Revised Standard Version, and now they've got the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. I would go ahead and recommend that. The Old Revised Standard Version is done very well by uh, in the Ignatia, uh, uh, Ignatius Press Bible. Right, right. Uh, so there's an, and it's very, you know, that nice Bible with a very attractive cover there. Uh, that's the um, Old RSV uh, edition, I believe. And they may now have an NRSV uh, edition, but they have very good footnotes and interpretation. Also, there's a very good Oxford uh, RSV uh, um, Catholic um, uh, um, uh, Bible as well that has very good explanatory notes, uh, but I'd probably mm. just uh, buy the Ignatius version. That's a good one. And I think EWTN uh, has a very good RSV version Absolutely. Um, as well with, uh, um, with the notes. EWTNRC.com, so you can check out. Uh, mm -hmm. We've got a bunch of Bibles there, and uh, certainly that one's mm -hmm. featured. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that promo, Father. Uh, oh, sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> Next stop, dear Father Spitzer. Why is there such a difference between the Gospel of John and the Synoptic Gospels? If Jesus did the things mentioned in John's Gospel and all those statements showing he was God, why are they not in the Synoptic Gospels? Love your show, Chuck. Well, Chuck, uh, here is the reason. is because uh, the Synoptic Gospels were influenced 
um, by uh, two sources, uh, the, the Q source and the Markan source, of course. Uh, Mark is one of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, and so they have a, a unity of content, plus Luke added his special sources and Matthew added his special sources. So um, uh, now I think there, Richard Bauckham has a very uh, good book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses that shows, I think, very well how um, those narratives, not just of Q and uh, the narratives in Mark and in Q, many of the narratives in Mark come from Peter himself. I think there's no question about that in the eyes of most scholars. But the point is, there are many traditions as well in those, as well as separate Matthew traditions and Lucan traditions. Mm -hmm. So you have all of these uh, um, uh, traditions. If you want to link them to the eyewitnesses, read that book book by Richard Bauckham uh, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. uh, he's one of the big Cambridge University dons, right, um, uh, you know, of scripture. And I think he's done an excellent job showing you how the names that are actually mentioned within the narratives, mm -hmm. those names are very probably the originators of the oral traditions, the eyewitness uh, people who are there. So um, you take a look at that book and you can get a pretty good idea of, of the uh, uh, you know, credit of uh, the uh, um, of those uh, traditions, the historical uh, uh, you know credit of those traditions. Uh, also, you know, the Shroud of Turin, with respect to uh, looking at the um, the Passion narratives mm -hmm. and looking at the Resurrection narratives, etc., are, are very, very uh, you know can validate you know from a scientific point of view the accuracy of both the Passion and Resurrection traditions. Let's go to John's Gospel because John's Gospel is more complicated. Now. Um, uh, first of all, I don't think um, uh, you could, just because some of the incidents in John are not mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, that doesn't, uh, you cannot exclude those, um, those narratives from uh, the corpus of uh, Jesus. But John has a very different intention from Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Mark, Matthew, and Luke want to give a kind of a breadth approach to the Gospel. Not John. John's a depth guy. He wants to go into maybe four or five or six, you know, incidents very, very deeply with lots of characterizations in them so you get the personalities of the people that are involved and so forth. So why is he so intent on doing this? Because his middle, right in the middle of things in the Passion, uh, you know, in his final discourses, Jesus says, here's my final commandment to you. Love one another as I have loved you. Mm -hmm. To me, this is the hermeneutical key in John. Mm -hmm. So what does he want to do? He wants to show specific instances of the love of God. So those specific instances of the love of God, why? Because Jesus is saying that's not just how God loved the people in the miracle story. That, uh, Jesus loved the people in the miracle story. That's how Jesus loves you. Mm. So if that's how Jesus and God love you, then you ought to love one another as he has loved you. So let's take yesterday's gospel. Okay, so yesterday, remember the sheep pool, uh, the man at the sheep pool. And you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, that guy at the sheep pool, hey, he put a dead 
dagger in Jesus. He basically turned him over to the authorities after he healed him. I mean, wh why did John include that miracle in, of all the miracles, uh, you know, he could have presented? Why did he put that one in? Because God loves even those who are going to betray them. Jesus loved Judas. Jesus loved that guy. Did he know that guy was going to turn him over to the authorities? I'm absolutely convinced he knew that that guy was going to turn him over to the authorities. Did he, it, it stop Jesus from performing the miracle? Did it stop Jesus from loving him? No, it did not. He went ahead and he loved that person. He was going to love sinners. And of course, that, that curious statement uh, that we see, you know, now when Jesus sees him again, he says, hey, um, see to it that you don't commit uh, sins in, in the future. This got you into trouble the right. first time. Uh, don't be repeating this. So the idea, you know, there is there's some background about this guy that Jesus knows, and right. he's warning him not to get back into that now that he's cured. And what does the guy do? He gets mad, resents Jesus, turns, turns him in, puts the dagger uh, in his back. Now, the interesting thing, though, is is that all about love? Yes, it's totally about love. It's about loving those who are going to betray you, loving those who have sinned in the past, loving even your enemies that we see, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount and in Luke's Gospel. And I'd and love so it forth. if we could continue on, but we're totally out of time, so a quick blessing <laughs> okay, for Okay, very good. Absolutely. So bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord who loves you so much that he loves you even in the midst of the times when you are turning your back on him. May the Lord who loves you continue to inspire you, that you might call upon his mercy when you need it, that you might know that this love is so precious that you never want to turn your back on him, that you know that this love is so precious that you can depend on it until the end of your life, take you and move you and help you into the fullness of his light and love in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week. And again, Father Spitzer's books and videos available through our catalog. We'll be answering more questions next week. Okay, and we've got Bookmark, You Shall Stand Firm, Preserving the Faith, an Agent of Apostasy. Our good friend, Father William Casey, will be on this weekend. Look for the EWTN Global Stations of the Cross for Peace in Ukraine, Friday, April 1st at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Very important event. Check that out. And we'll see you next time right here in Father Spitzer's universe.